It's the Craggy Rugby Podcast. I'm Rob Murphy. Slightly different show for you this week. No game to preview, but we're taking a breath and having a chat and seeing where things stand. And my God, there's a lot to talk about. Joining me on the show to make sense of a world gone mad. William Davis, how are you? I'm good, Rob. I'm good. And also on the line, Lindy McKenzie, how are you? Evening, Rob. I'm great, thanks. I know, these are strange times. More difficult, I think, at this point than at any point since rugby started, Lindley, in terms of uh, the landscape of Ireland, as we're all a little bit shook by high numbers and added into that, then some rugby being postponed. This probably makes it all make sense that the rugby is off this weekend, but tough times for everyone. Yeah, it's. Um, I suppose it starts to take its toll on a few people, I'm sure, after a while. It has been a, a very long, nearly coming up to, what, a year, nearly in March? Um, so it's, it's you know, it's, it is what it is. You have to make the best of it. But I can understand while there are a few frustrated people and I'd be more concerned, I think, with, um, well, I have a 15-year-old teenager, so I'm a little bit concerned with the mental health of that sort of age group who, yeah. you know, there's no escape outside with their friends. They're not allowed to. They can't play any sport. They're doing all their lessons online. That works for some people, not for others. So, look, you know, you just have to sort of, deal with it as best you can and um, be thankful for what we have and the fact that we're here today chatting. Yeah, and we'll circle back a little bit about the uh, other side of the sport because obviously we speak about the elite, but I'm interested in, in speaking a bit about that when we talk later on one of our topics, which is just a little bit about COVID restrictions and what it might mean going forward. William, I was just looking at my phone there and a picture popped up uh, from uh, the Ireland versus Wales Aviva Stadium game that I went along to last February, but it surprised me that it was in 2020. It's amazing to think that, you know, it is within the calendar, within a year ago that uh, we were watching games in full capacity. It's a long way from that right now, but I think everyone would snap your hand off right now just to get some Six Nations of any kind, even if they were just watching it at home. Yeah, I actually found the match ticket in the programme for that last week, Ah. and it does seem to be from a different era. People were just starting to talk about the uh, virus. Uh, little mm-hmm. did we know what it had in store for us. Okay, to start this week and to set the scene for what we'll talk about, I asked you, William, just to give us uh, a little bit of a rundown just quickly, and we'll get into more detail on where things stand in each competition. So I'm going to just go quick fire through it. First of all, let's start with what's not coming up this weekend and why we don't have a game to preview. The European Challenge Cup and Champions Cup have been postponed, correct? Yeah, they've been postponed. Um I don't think we're going to see any more pool games and it's going to go straight to knockout in April. They're going to use their four weekends that they have designated two in April, two in May. We'll go in more detail on that in a while. Pro 14, how are we standing right now? Uh, the competition is still looking at the winner of each conference going to the final, isn't correct? Yeah, they are. Um, it depends on how you've got on in, in cancellation land uh, or mm. postponement land. Connacht have seven games left. Uh, Munster have seven games left and they're 11 points ahead. Uh, they're they're going to play Leinster next weekend, I think it's, uh, February 22nd. That's a big game for both sides. Leinster have to win it. We need Leinster to win it. Munster could almost guarantee their final position if they win that because they'll go 15 points clear uh, of Connacht with six games left. Uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh are playing this week and then they're all supposed to restart on the 6th of February. 
And we're going to race through a lot of fixtures, William, to towards that final. Obviously, the other teams will have something to play for in terms of top three spot guaranteeing Champions Cup rugby. Uh, that's getting forgotten a little bit in some of the criticism of that structure. But having said that, the lack of a playoffs really does take away from the tournament. There is a possibility in my mind, so maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, if this Rainbow Cup, which is very uncertain in terms of late spring, uh, doesn't go ahead, that they may revisit the Pro 14 format. Is that fair? Uh, yes, but they're going to have to make that decision very quickly. They can't start playing these games in February to run out to a 16, every team playing 16 games and then say, oh, the Rainbow Cup's cancelled, so now you're going to play more games. I think if they don't announce that within the next couple of weeks, and I don't think they're going to because I'm, I'm convinced they're going to try to keep the Rainbow Cup going. If the Rainbow Cup doesn't happen, then I think they'll come up with an alternative competition that doesn't involve the South African teams. Uh, and frankly, at that stage, I just, I, I don't know. But I, I don't, I think once, once you get to February the 6th and Connacht start making up their games, Everybody has to make up games except Ulster and Cardiff, who've both managed to get 11 games played, uh, which is just the luck of the draw. If you get into that, you, you can't really change that format. You've got to get to the 27th of March final. And I, I don't think the Rainbow Cup can go ahead in the current circumstances with what we're seeing. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's related to the British and Irish Lions, which I don't think you think is going to go ahead. And you just have about 30 seconds left to tell me, where are we with the Six Nations, uh, both from men's perspective and a women's perspective? And that should have us all up to date. Men's Six Nations starts on the 6th of February. Ireland's first game is away to Wales on the 7th. There are question marks over it regarding what the French government feel about it. But the first weekend is going to take place. The women's Six Nations has been postponed probably until April and the under 26 Nations is probably is postponed and is probably going to be played in June as there is no World Cup for that age group for the second year in a row. Brilliant summary. Uh, one thing, Lindley, that had me worried there was when he started talking about another competition. So let's not even go there. What I want to do to kick off this chat, though, is how do you see things as they stand for Connacht right now, Lindley? And I guess I'll put it to you this way to start you off. Uh, they went 12 weeks of rugby. And what I mean by that is two or three games were called off, but they still had to go through a full week of training, prep, and it was only at the last minute that it was called off. So they've been busy for 12 weeks. I'm sure, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, management and players equally will be all uh, enjoying a few sleep-ins this week and just relaxing. Oh, I'm absolutely sure of it. I mean, it's kind of unprecedented, isn't it, that you have to go for, for this length of time that they have gone in these circumstances without without some sort of a break. So I'm sure it's a really good downtime. I think, you know, we, we tend to forget that although they had three weekends free, I think, from that because when games were changed or postponed, you know, as Andy Friend said, they still had to actually, they still went through the week as if they were as if they were going to play. So they still had to do the training. They still had no downtime, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure, look, there, it's, it's a good time really for for all of them for all of us actually you know to relax and and for a week before facing into you know what could possibly be a very unsure time so look it's difficult when you have to prepare as if there's going to be games we have to prepare as if there's going to be matches we don't really know um so it's it's 
you know, it, it's, a, it's a bit unsettling. It's, it's kind of unreal. But, you know, professionals, that's what they have to do if they want to play rugby. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they're all they're all very well managed and, you know, they're ready for whatever, you know, whatever happens. You have heard that there's a possibility that we might, and even by the time the podcast comes out, that the Ospreys fixture may well be brought forward to next weekend alongside uh, the weekend's action where Leinster are playing uh, Munster, of course. Uh, that would be moved forward from the 13th of February. And we know Connacht will be playing away to the Dragons the weekend. The Six Nations kicks off. That's a Friday night fixture. They're the only two fixtures on the agenda for Connacht at the moment. Absolutely. And I think they'd like to get that that Ospreys match, you know, out of the way and done, particularly, you know, they don't need a three week break. They'd like to get it out of the way. They've still got these two matches to catch up. So they there is they are negotiating. I think they'd probably hope to have those negotiations, you know, finalized today at some stage if if it is going to go ahead. But I suppose there's a lot to work through, isn't there, between, you know, flights and safety and, you know, we don't know all the, the, the protocol that has to go through for, for the Welsh sides as well. But it would be it would be great if they had this week off and they were able to get back and, and get that match out of the way. Yeah, it would certainly. Lindy, just on the interprovincial series that's just gone by, I've I've been saying, I just want to know what you think about this, that I feel it was one of the best triple headers from a conic perspective that I can remember in terms of consistency of performance. Obviously, one poor half against Ulster, against the wind. And as you brilliantly said in this podcast, look, bottom line, the conditions changed in that game. So that was an enormous factor. And if you put in the other two performances, even the way they stuck at it and stuck at it against Munster, didn't give up and almost unlocked them at the end. I think it was a good body of work. Would you agree or would you be more cautious? No, I actually totally agree. In fact, I kind of feel more energised by by watching their energy on the pitch, you know, for these three matches. Um, I think there's a, a very good squad of players there at the moment, possibly need, you know, at least another year together to be able to maybe fulfil any more, fulfil some of that potential. You've had some new players coming in. Um, Andy Friends obviously astutely, as he said, you know, had to maybe shop an Aldi as a, as a, as opposed to anywhere else for his his players. But I can tell you that some of those players, you know, um, are, you know, a very astute, a very astute, you know, uh, recruitments. I think from Andy Friend, he knows what he was looking for, and he's got it. And I think. Remember, we've got a long, lot of young players. There's been quite a few changes, you know, even in the kind of structure with the like academy boys and everyone training together, which they didn't used to do in the old days. They were quite separate. And I think that's really lifted. And also as well that there's been, you know, a little bit of um, reduction in the amount of academy players as well. So I think it's really lifted, I think, the, the quality of, of those players training alongside the senior players. It's... It's almost like they're one squad now, whether they're academy or not. It's almost like they are one squad and they train together all the time. And I think there's a lot of talent that has been earmarked, you know, that they did recruit that is coming through. And I think, you know, Pat Lamb had his three seasons with Connacht and I think he he kind of maybe got there, in fact, a year ahead of probably what he thought he was going to in terms of success. And I think it would would, definitely, I would like to see this team that shows so much potential come to fruition and maybe in the following, maybe next year. Because we look, I think we just have to discount this year in, in so many ways. Yeah, and yet with all these competitions towards the end of the season, maybe there's still going to be some really exciting times to look forward to, William. Uh, but overall, I'm curious, what was your view on the interprovincial series uh, from your perspective? Uh, I wouldn't be quite as positive as uh, the two of you. 
I think the f- the problem is they only won one out of five games. If you look at the two games in Europe as well, and they had chances in all of them. They 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 were impressive and took their chances against Leinster. Um, they really needed to beat Munster to stay in that competition seriously. And for a long part of that game, they were nowhere near it. But when you get a chance at the end and you bungle it, which they did, mm. that really hurts because they're professional players and they should have been ready for that and their decision-making was wrong. And they've, they've admitted that. And they will. I, I will say they do learn as they go. They're, they're, they're quick on the uptake. But that was a frustration because they worked so hard in that game to to stay in it. They were 16-3 down. You think that it's over, but they kept going, and that's brilliant. But when you get that when you get that chance right at the end, you have to say to yourself, would Leinster have won that game if they were playing against 13 players? Yes. Ulster would probably have done it. Connacht should have done it, and they didn't. And that was a golden opportunity. I think most teams would have won it. I think the Scarlets, Edinburgh, Cardiff, all those sides would have converted. Well, they would, well, well, they would the, yeah, and the thing was they probably would have gone at it in a better way. But the decision-making just broke down. And look, that happens. It, mistakes get made. If nobody made a mistake on a rugby field, every game would finish nil-nil because no defence would ever be breached or nobody would ever happened. get a giveaway penalty. It has happened at key junctures in 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 four of in all four of the defeats. So if you if you if you take the uh, Racing game, they have a line out in the twenty two last play of the game, and it it doesn't go right. You take the Bristol game, you have a penalty in front of the post, last play of the game, a point was there, and they didn't make the right decision. You take the Ulster game, last play of the game, they have two pro fourteen points on the line if they got a try there from that five meter line out. And it didn't go right. And I think we kind of forgot about that in the aftermath of the second half. Uh, You know, the game getting away. You see what I'm getting at. And obviously your point there at the Munster match. So, like, I know I'm positive and I am, but this is a lot of mistakes. Yeah, and it's the sort of mistakes that uh, will really... I mean, they say they're frustrated. The word, actually, the better word is I'd say they're angry. They're fed up with themselves. They, 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 They want to be the best. And it's small things like that that's letting them down. They're getting a lot of things right. The thing that, that strikes me about this season, and it's been a very difficult season, the players that they've brought in fit in immediately. You're not mm. looking at a player and thinking, uh, all right, he's arrived and he has. it's going to take him a couple of weeks to get in to what they're at. There doesn't seem to be any of that anymore. Players seem to be able to be swapped in and out. Uh, and some players are starters and some players aren't. But when players come in, they look ready to do the job. And that makes things a lot easier for the team. Because you, you can't just keep selecting the same players over and over. That said, a lot of players have a lot of minutes on board. And I think if Bristol had gone ahead, there would have had to be a lot of players rested simply on the amount of rugby they've played. And now that Bristol and Racing aren't going ahead, hopefully the Ospreys comes in in place of Racing. Um, those players are going to get that rest. And it's mental rest as much as physical rest. They have clocked up. John Porch has played every game, for example. And that We've been there before, and that's where players, their form goes or they get injured because they've just played too much rugby. Lenny. I think 
I, I think you have to also look at the fact that um, that we are in COVID times and we do have players in and out having to take time out because of, of COVID. So we have lost quite a few players. I think, you know, it was possibly even up to eight last week, not lost them because they have COVID, because they're isolating through contacts with COVID, which, which has put a, a lot of burden on some of those players to have who have played this lot of game. The other thing I would say is unfor, unforgivable that they make some of the decisions is really based on experience. And if you look at some of those decision that were made, they were made without the club captain being on the pitch at the time because he has been unavailable. And it takes a lot of experience, I think, for for people to come in and take over captaincy if they've never done it before. I think sometimes they tend to look at their own position and rather than analyse the with their head sometimes they get a rush of blood to the head instead and they kind of make those decisions but that comes from experience and I would I would I would forgive some of those decisions that were made because they are they are as Andy Friend would say their learnings frustrating and I think that's possibly why there is that frustration because they did make the wrong decisions but at the at the end of the day, that that is a decision that that they will. That's a growth of the the players themselves, and you know, I I I'm not so I'm I'm not so hard on them for making those decisions, despite the fact that you know they they can prove costly. William, to move it on towards European rugby, and we're still unsure, but some reports uh, emerging that there's going to be a full cancellation now of the two pool rounds of games and move straight to a knockout phase. In that, it has been reported and suggested that there's a chance that even Connacht might qualify for a Challenge Cup in that format. They're currently outside the top eight in their conference, so they won't be qualifying for the last 16, William, of the Champions Cup. But if they were to enter a Challenge Cup competition, if they were lucky enough to uh, get that, I would call that a reprieve. And it could be quite a, a nice bonus from a Connacht perspective to enter a tournament where they'll be alongside teams that they will fancy their chances of at least giving a good push and giving a good uh, rep- representing themselves quite well as a contender. Yeah, I suppose it depends on. I, I would assume with only one point, they'll they'll be in a, they'll be away rather than a home game. Ooh, yeah, um, it depends. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's the only way they can do it. They have to move it on. They they should have really sorted this out last week and said we're not playing any more pool games. Uh, I think television will like the fact that there'll be eight knockout games in the Champions Cup, and there will if Connacht come through into the Challenge Cup, there'll be eight knockout games in the Challenge Cup. And then you'll go to four quarter finals. So you're bringing in knockout rugby uh, and all that entails is sides have to go for it a bit more. And they're doing their best to get this finished so that the TV contract is seen out. They have a champion. Marseille lost the finals last year. They want to get the two finals played in Marseille in May of 2021. And I think it would be good for Connacht to play another, hopefully a side that they don't play regularly uh, if they get into the Challenge Cup. Yeah, that would be another interesting, it's another challenge. It's another learning opportunity for this team to play Mm. the sort of knockout rugby and, you know, bring in your decision-making processes and, and work towards that. But I suppose the Pro 14 is their main aim at the moment. They have a lot of away matches to play, but I agree with you. They should be setting up to be 
getting on a run of wins there. Although playing it in the Six Nations means they could be missing some key players again. It's very yeah, unusual you're... to play to play Pro 14 rugby uh, on a continuous basis during the uh, the Six Nations. That's never happened before, and yeah. potentially playing Munster. Uh, during the Six Nations. Now, that's an interesting thought, going to Thoman Park, when they could be missing a lot of their internationals. Normally, you'd never dream of playing a Six Nations inter-pro game. Lily, uh, William was referencing there the progress that Connacht could make in terms of the Pro 14 and as well as that, this competition in the Challenge Cup. There is a potential for Connacht to go on quite a run. There's fixtures that are favourable. We've mentioned Thoman Park. There mightn't be, but may well be, as William has pointed out there. And this competition will excite Andy Friend and his management team if Connacht get into the Challenge Cup. So we'll be all keeping our fingers crossed that they do get that because based on the old format and the fact that they lost their first two games and the strength of opposition that was coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks, no one really gave them much of a chance to be a knockout rugby in uh, in the spring so this would be a bonus oh absolutely I mean everyone loves European rugby so and and Connacht particularly um, pity the fans can't travel as 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 and and the media as we used to be able to to um, to to Europe but it's it's something different it's always necessary I think Europe has always been a, a competition that Connacht has almost reveled in because of the the change from the bread and butter of the, you know, the Pro 14 and any opportunity, I think, to play Europe, to, to give, you know, the players, especially some of those young players, the opportunity to play in a comp- in a European competition is, is only good, for, is only good for, you know, their development and also, you know, the squad morale. Yeah, well, more on that in the coming weeks on this podcast as it emerges and it'll be interesting to see what the fixtures are if Connacht get in there. Hopefully they do. We don't know yet. Right now, it's up in the air. William, you've mentioned the Six Nations. We know the men's one is ploughing ahead. I know the French do want to uh, discuss, uh, the French government wants to discuss with Six Nations organisers about how the protocols will align with their own protocols. They're super worried uh, about any sort of travel between uh, Great Britain and France when it comes to rugby. Uh, That's what led to the European rugby called off, it was the French government. So the Six Nations is going ahead, but there will be a few more talks, so nothing guaranteed. But what was interesting, and it's leading into our one interview this week, Neve Briggs was chatting to you. We've already heard her on the uh, In Match podcast, but this is about uh, the wider picture around women's rugby. What is interesting is the women's Six Nations has been postponed temporarily. Maybe just give people an idea as to why. Because some people might say, why is the men's allowed to go ahead and the women's isn't? William, answer that tough question. Well, I think uh, there's only one professional team in women's rugby in the Six Nations, that's England. Mm. France are described as semi-professional. Everybody else, and I'm not talking about the work that these women put in to play rugby. That's not amateur. But they're amateur players. They have other jobs outside of uh, their rugby. And they train sometimes, do a lot of individual training or they train in very small groups. And I think it was felt, and, and I think to be fair, this started when the Women's Six Nations was trying to be finished back in October. Uh, England, the RFU or the England Women's, said that they didn't think it was fair to put any pressure on the other teams to ask women to try to make, go into bubbles or to be tested or to stop working. So they simply said, at the moment, it's not feasible when you have a competition that as amateurs and professionals, that they can all operate on the same way. So it's been moved to April. 
I'm not quite sure how they're going to run this off. It Normally, it's five games in seven weeks, which is the same as the men's and the under-20s. Are they going to try to play five games in five weeks? Or are they going to have... I saw one suggestion, which I thought was crazy, that they would play a sort of a Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. I don't think that's doable. Uh, the reason it's very important to get this played is there are teams who still haven't qualified for the Women's World Cup which is to take place in New Zealand in September. And I think we can say that if there's one sporting event that is probably going to happen, hmm. uh, rather than Lions Tours and Olympics and everything else, currently there is no issue with the Women's Rugby World Cup being taken in New Zealand. Unless New Zealand goes down some really weird COVID rabbit hole, that tournament takes place. And at the moment they have a draw in place, but there's a lot of teams. We, we don't know the teams that are getting there. So, I just wonder, yeah, I just wonder, William, on that, like, we know they'll have to quarantine for 14 days before they go into New Zealand for that World Cup. So, yes, they're amateurs, but they're, they're employers. You know what they're like? They're like elite GA players, really, the Irish women's team, because, you know, like the elite GA players, their employers are very accommodating of these athletes. And, of course, like elite GA players, these Irish women's uh, player, players put in a huge amount of work, close or not, ma- if not matching professionals. Having said that, they're obviously uh, have uh, conflictions with, their, with the fact that they have to work and go back into the workforce but with that in mind I'm just thinking if they have to isolate for 14 days going into New Zealand maybe you could have 14 to 20 day isolation at some point in April for these players to play a tournament in one location uh, a women's six nations maybe it's three games two groups with a final I don't know I'm just throwing it out there yeah the, 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 they, they may come up with different ideas because um, we really need this to go ahead for the sake of women's rugby I mean it's critical yeah no, it, it, it is critical and it has to go ahead um, as as best they can, and they may have to be agile and have to change things around a little bit. There is a suggestion that the women's Six Nations should be moved away from the men's Six Nations anyway. Mm. I'm not convinced about that. I, I think the Six Nations weekend, if you're a Six Nations diehard like I am, now consists of the under-20s, the men's, and the women's. Now, maybe I need to find other things to do with my time, but I watch as much of it as I can. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this thing about, oh, we'll move it away and we'll give it a separate time base. I'm not sure. I think the Six Nations draws in people from outside of normal rugby watching. And I just hope if they do that, that they make the right decision, that they don't just say, do you know what, we're going to play it in May every year. Uh, and it'll be great and it'll get lots of attention. And after a couple of years, they'll realize that actually it's not getting the attention because there's so much other sport going on. And I think that's it'll be interesting this year if it's played separate, how much attention it gets in April. I just hope it goes ahead. Good lead in to your chat with Neve Briggs at the sports ground after she was working on Live 95. She gave us some time and big thanks to Neve. Uh, it should set a little bit more of uh, the picture for you. Turn our attention now to women's rugby. We're all dealing with COVID. It's been really complicated. The women's Six Nations uh, wasn't really fully completed, although England were the were, were the champions. The women's World Cup qualifying games uh, were called off. We now hear the women's Six Nations has issues. It must be really, really difficult because you just can't play at the minute. Yeah, look, it's incredibly frustrating, I think, for... Not just international players, we're club players alike. I think, you know, 
we're trying to develop the game here we're trying to fast track it so that we can compete with the likes of the Englands and the Frances and um, you can't really do that if you're not playing any games so yeah look I think it's incredibly frustrating I think the lack of information I think for the girls is, is really hard I think you know you're heading into Six Nations talks now that look like it's going to be in April and May as opposed to February and March and give teams time I think when you're um, not professional you're an amateur player you um, can't go into a bubble like these men's professional teams can and um, and you you know unfortunately you're going to have to pay the price for it. I think I think the sensible thing to do would probably to to hold off on it. But then you've got to look at the World Cup qualifiers. You know there's a, a potential World Cup in September in New Zealand. Does that go ahead? And you, you'd like to think that World Rugby Six Nations Rugby will have answers and they'll have contingency plans in place. But um, they're a little bit slow to release that information. I think that's probably the most frustrating thing. And do you think Ireland women's rugby built on the successes in 2013 and 15 and 17 or has it got a little bit, uh, the interest and maybe the drive from the top has got a little bit lukewarm? I think the fan base are still very, very interested. We've covered women's matches live here on Galway Bay FM. We know how dedicated they are. We know how hard they work as amateurs. Can't emphasise enough of that. But does it need to maybe be regalvanized by the people at the top to actually to, to get it to the next level? Yeah, I think there's probably a, a multifaceted question. I think I think um, have we built on success? I think to a, a huge extent, yes. But we won't see the fruits of that labour until probably another five or six years because the numbers that we're getting in underage girls training now across the country, the pathways that have put in place for under sixes, under eights, under tens, um, is now there. You know, most clubs have have you know a facility for and teams and uh, training sessions for, for young girls so you know it'll be down the line that we'll see the fruit of that labour and so from that aspect I think uh, yeah we've we've done we've worked really hard in terms of the RFU each of the provinces um, and the rollout that they've been doing they've you know I'm obviously not in it but you look at it with a keen eye and you, you, you see what they're doing and you, you, you become very proud of their effort when you go down to my local club ULBOs and you see 50 or 60 odd girls on a Sunday morning you know it's, it's brilliant and I, and I know it's right across the board um, but then there's other issues too the gap from that age group then up until senior and I think um, there's still a lot of work to be done there I think um, structures need to be put in place so that the calibre the the type of rugby or the club rugby scene needs to be stronger I think there's you know three or four teams and in the gap to the next teams down it's really really um, it's really big and teams that have come up into AIL are you know going to struggle they need to be given a period of grace I think in terms of a couple of years ago Tullamore came up and did unbelievably well but then went straight back down because you know they were only kind of getting going when they got relegated if that makes any sense and um, so yeah look I think from that aspect you'd like to see more done I think from an international aspect um, I don't think they could be doing much more to be honest I think the RFU you know the facilities they have, the state of the art work that they've been going in. They go, they spend way more time together now than we ever did. You know they arrive in camp on a Friday morning, Friday afternoon, and then they leave on a Sunday evening. We we you know be trekking up at half past five on a Saturday morning to be there for nine o'clock, and you'd be coming straight back down the road again on a Sunday. So definitely from an SNC a medical point of view um, a facilities point of view 100% the, the girls are competing with the best in the world in terms of the likes of the English and the France you've just got to try and give them time and um, 
and ability to be able to develop them. I think that's the big thing. I think when we coach girls at club level, we have to have good coaches. And it's not just girls. I see it across the AIL men as well. You need good coaches that we're going to be able to develop and make players better. And, and you know, I'm coaching a little bit with you at both at the moment and I find it incredibly difficult in terms of you've got international players and you've got new players in have never played rugby before and you've got to try and cater for everything. So I see that there are issues and there are hardships and you've, you know, you want everybody to come away from every single training session A, having enjoyed it but B, having learned something and so you've got to try and cater for everyone and, and, and that's great across the board so it's still a developing sport unfortunately in Ireland and you know while we want the best in terms of um, competing for our Six Nations and World Cups I think France and England have a jump on us and you know it's going to be a while until we can catch up but I don't think we can compare ourselves to them because um, for a long time we didn't have any pathways in place for young girls to play so I think that's got to breed the foundation for women's rugby in Ireland so that every girl can play and every girl can get better and then when you come to the likes of 18, 19, 20 year olds you know you're, you're able to vie for positions in into pro squads and national squads The player we all look at here is Bevan Parsons uh, I mean, she's our superstar in Connacht. She's really set Connacht alight. She's set Ireland alight. What What do you see for her going forward? Yeah, look, I've you know, we've had a few world superstar players, and she's definitely up there. She's um, and the scary thing is her age. She's so so young, and she's still learning. I think um, she's probably only played a handful or two, maybe less than ten games of of senior you know adult rugby in her lifetime and yet she's exploded onto the scene and um, she's incredibly athletic and unbelievably good reader of the game I don't think people give her credit she you know that in step trial last year in Six Nations she you know she she could see her coming from a phase or two before and um, that's really difficult to teach if that makes any sense so um, yeah look she's you, you I don't like to heap pressure on one player. I don't think it's right. I think she's incredibly young. She's going to make mistakes and you have to allow her to make those mistakes. But it all bodes very well for the future for her. And um, you can be sure as hell, like like an Alison Miller-esque type person, that you can get the ball to her as often as you can. Then she's going to do something special because she's a very special player. All right, from that, we're almost ready on the podcast. Big thanks to Neve, uh, Lindley. I'm just wondering, uh, just something you said off the top of the podcast. William will 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 give us a kind of a bit of a cold perspective on this topic, but I did want to talk about it briefly. You know, you mentioned you know younger people and your fear for this time and the challenges and their inability to do sport. It's something I'm quite worried about because during the summer when they opened up the underage sport, one of the and this is pure anecdotal, but one of the things I saw from, look, I live in the centre of my town, were the amount of young men and women, the young amount of boys and girls cycling up to the uh, GA grounds, gear bags on their back. There was a huge uptake. They were dying to get out, the social element of sport. It was brilliant. And I wonder sometimes with all this focus on elite sport and huge investment, obviously, in terms of testing and keeping elite sport going, and obviously it's great entertainment to lots of people, and all this talk about the mental health benefits of having sport on the telly for people, which are great. I don't think they come anywhere close to the mental health benefits of people actually getting out and about themselves. And that concerns me a little bit sometimes. I, I feel like there's a little bit of a balance there that's maybe a little bit off as we you know, try to make sure that we protect the top level of the sport. And I just I'm concerned that maybe there isn't enough drive to focus on the most important thing, which is getting as many ad- adults as possible, as soon as possible, back out playing and competing and just partaking in any sort of sport 
Well, look, I understand totally, you know, the reason for it, you know, that it is only the professionals. Um, I think the biggest thing you saw over the summer, and that probably is what was a worry when there was competition, was that whenever there was a, a competition and a GA club winning, especially small towns, small communities who had maybe never won, you know, a championship before that it did create an atmosphere of celebration and in those particular places you know it, it would appear that the COVID numbers did go up and I think that is a major worry when it is taken out of the professional realm and into into the community realm of sport that you are you know you don't have the same checks and balances and I can un totally understand it it's awfully hard when you're you know, I know in training, when you're not a professional team, there was a lot of training taking place, like even, you know, my son was, was playing soccer, and it was all socially distant soccer. It was, it was a way of, you know, cycling up to the pitch and training without contact. That's mm -hmm. obviously been scrapped. And I think there are ways around it. There are, look, it's always going to be fraught with difficulty, but it's very hard to motivate just going for a walk or a cycle or a run every day by yourself, you know, um, you know, particularly for a lot of people. And, and I think particularly I, I really do worry more a lot about about teenagers who um, who don't have who crave that contact. And, and as a result of that, they spend most of their time now on PS4s or that sort of stuff, you know. And I think that's that's uh, and I'm I suppose I'm looking at it from a personal point of view. Um and and saying to myself, look, you know, once upon a time, they'd be cycling down the road to for, for soccer training or Gaelic training or rugby training, you know, and they can't do that anymore. And what do they do to make up for it? You know, you, you're not allowed to meet socially. Some of them still sort of go tend to go for walks with masks on. Um, but it's, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same thing at all. Yeah. And it concerns me. And William, look, I'm being, I'm being honest. We've had discussions about this. You know, some of the protocols and some of the talk around the professional scene, I, I do roll my eyes at when they, they talk about elite sports athletes being in this professional environment where no stone has been left unturned because I don't think that's entirely the correct picture of it. I think they're doing incredible work across the four provinces to protect the players and to do their best for COVID not spread. And they're, in comparison with the GA, the information we're getting, we got no information about COVID testing from the GA during the entire championship. No press releases. Every single week we get a press release from rugby telling us how many uh, tests they've done. So they're doing that. But tests are just tests. They only tell you where things are at a point in time. They don't stop COVID getting in, for example. So uh, sometimes I'm just, you know, of a, of a kind of a feeling that you know, there's a huge commercial interest in what keeps rugby going. It's great for us. We love it. We love watching it. We're delighted it's do, doing it. But it's the commercial interest that's driving uh, professional sport going, not necessarily the government's kind of saying that, look, we're going to keep professional sport going for the good of people's mental health. The RFU are just keeping it going so they can keep the coffers coming in first and foremost. And in reality, you know, we had Leinster and Connacht playing each other, six or eight cases across the two teams. If that had happened in October, that game wouldn't have gone ahead. So the parameters have started to change. Those kind of elements, like your view is different than mine, I think, overall. Just maybe maybe counterbalance my slight scepticism about how good an idea it is to be playing rugby right now here in January uh, when the cases are so high, as, a, as opposed to December when things were much better. Well, I have no issue with rugby being played. And I don't think stopping rugby being played is going to help one person who either has COVID and is in hospital or has COVID and is at home self-isolating. Um, if the medical authorities had an issue, 
they would be able to stop it, as they have in France with the European rugby, very quickly. Now, you can argue why these decisions have been made in France, because it doesn't make an awful lot of sense, especially as when they cancelled the European rugby, they just filled up those two weekends with top 14 rugby. Well, they're worried uh, so about those... the, They're saying they're worried about well, the British uh, strain or you know the UK strain of COVID, and that's why they don't want. Well, to the UK it. strain of COVID is probably already in France, but yeah, we're, we're not a medical podcast. But no. uh, I think you cannot expect players who aren't paid to live with a regime. So I'm talking about elite GAA players being asked now to. They've been told they can't train. Because As they would have to the professional rugby players. Professional yeah. rugby players are paid to do this. So if they're told to take a test, they will turn up and take the test. Because if they don't take the test, they're not going to play and they're going to be censured for that. And I suspect that for all the support they've been given, any professional player who has caught COVID or is a close contact, maybe catching it more important, will have been bluntly asked, What did you do? What did you do differently? Uh, we've told you what to do, and they, they, they'll, they'll admit it. There's, I think it's very open. I don't think there's any hiding place. And some players in any of the four provinces have probably had to put up their hand and say, well, actually, I went here and I went there and I shouldn't have gone here, and I'm and that's happened. And they will support them medically, but they they will bluntly ask them. And they've, ex, you know, they expect a very high standard, and I think it's very difficult to, to do what they've been asked to do. The testing is nothing. It's it's unpleasant, we're told, but to have that thing shoved up your nose. But it's it's actually the way you, you, you turn up for work, the way that you're not supposed to socialise, the, the detail they go into when some player catches it. And I only think you can do that in a professional sport. I don't think you could ask anybody to put themselves through that for something that is essentially a pastime for them. Uh, just on just on that, Leo Cullen highlighted, you know, correctly that there are academy players in there, and there's there's a the, the fluctuation. Let's say you and I watch American sports, and the minimum wage in ice hockey is seven hundred grand a year. You know, some of the players are on ten million, but you're still talking about a high high earner in terms of the lowest play player in rugby. You got amateur players on very very small con, uh, contracts. I mean, they're just they're living at home with their parents, as Leo Cullen said. Some of his academy players, some of them living with vulnerable player people, was his quote. So just on that there is a certainty around how it's discussed in the media and i don't think there's a challenge to that certainty in terms of you brilliantly highlighted all the incredible work they're doing but we heard i heard uh, one provincial team singing in the dressing room we know another one where by a quote that was out there do you know it's not that they're perfect either William, you know what i mean and the other element too is we keep hearing about they're in a bubble but they do go home to their families as leo cullen highlighted there and as we were told through i think something like four of conic six cases that in one of the weeks during the thing were 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 uh, community cases as opposed to you know within the team which was great news in terms of it wasn't spreading within the squad that's very very good news but it also kind of just highlighted to me that even as professionals, you can't completely cocoon them either. You know what I'm saying? Well, if you completely cocoon them, they wouldn't be able to play. Well, the issue has to be, Connacht follow the guidelines that are given to them by the IRFU. The, the guidelines that come from the IRFU are agreed uh, with Public Health Ireland or... NEFET or the Department of Health. The, IR, the IRFU don't 
just say, right, these are the guidelines, lads. We, we've decided. Um, if you look at the Pro 14 uh, medical, that has to deal with six governmental systems because there's a health regime in Northern Ireland. You've got one here. You've got Wales, Scotland, Italy. South Africa are probably still involved in that because they're dealing with a huge issue, even though their teams haven't turned up in Pro 14 this season. So there's, there's a lot of depth to this. And I'll come back again. If they felt for any reason, if they looked at it, didn't like the look of the figures, look at the Munster-Leinster game. was called off at Christmas because there, were, there was contamination on the testing. There was Leinster got false positives. They actually fixed it and confirmed that. But because it was outside the timeline of what's accepted for the game to be signed off by governmental, they just said, well, you can't play it because you're outside the timeline. Sorry, it's well, off. They, they also, William, they also ended up with a false negative, possibly, because within two days of that test, one of the players developed symptoms and, and tested himself. Again, keep in mind, this is all because Leinster are giving us all this information, so the transparency is fantastic. But it, it's just, it's not perfect, is my point. I wanted to have a proper discussion on it, and which is great. Uh, you've you've given people a real picture of why they can rest assured I think Lindley you want to jump in there maybe and just as we went back and forth into I, that. I do just briefly we tend to forget that this is their jobs so if they're not doing their job what do they do do they join you know the, the government subsidy scheme so I mean we look upon them as being professional rugby players but we forget that professional rugby players this is their occupation and so if if if, if one if they're not playing their rugby then what are they going to do? They're going to join the same, presumably, you know, subsidy schemes, you know, that 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 everyone else is on. Um, so I think there's that element of it that people forget about. They keep saying professional rugby players, professional rugby players, but this is their job, you know, and if they don't have a job, then what do they do? They're, they're, they are blessed. They admit that they're blessed, that they are able to continue. But I think you do – but – and it's set up such a way as that they can continue. There are always going to be, look, there are always going to be, you know, breakdowns or, you know, they're always going to, that, that's life. But when you consider the amount of people who are playing rugby professionally in this country and how the fact that it has continued so successfully, I think, I think they've done a bloody good job, quite frankly. Brilliantly summed up. I think we'll leave it there, but we just definitely don't want people to be thinking, jeez, the guys here aren't thinking about these things. We are, and we we follow, uh, we get an awful lot of information from the IRFU, from the Comic Branch. I've, uh, even in the lead into this segment, had, had a lot of conversations with uh, Connacht and Stephen about this, and they're very transparent. And they're very clear on what they can't be certain on either, which I think is really interesting. Uh, there are times when they're saying, yeah, you know what? You can, I can see the other side of this, but we're we're following every last uh, bit of uh, medical advisory from the medical advisory group in the Pro 14 that William spoke about there, and obviously their contacts with the HSE. So hopefully that uh, keeps you assured of what's going on in the background, and don't be don't be doubting that we're not challenging all the information we get and making sure that we know where we stand. Lads, to finish really quickly, but I did want to talk about this because it'll open conversations going forward. Lindley, I'll start with you. We have heard, and it was reported in the press, that there was a long delay in the province's ability to sit down with players and discuss contracts. So as we stand in this quiet period of rugby, it's going to be, I was talking about all the players getting relaxing, sleeping in, all the management. I would imagine for a number of them, 
it's been quite a busy week. It's probably been the first chance that they've had to speak with Connacht about their contracts for players who are uh, coming to the end of their terms. And it's been Connacht's first chance to try and put something on the table. That could be too late for Connacht because other teams might have got in there uh, since they were able to talk. And also, it's just quite difficult right now to keep this team together. As you said yourself, you're excited about what this team could do next season. That's if they're all here. Well, it, it, I suppose it all comes down really, doesn't it, to the IRFU. Um, they're, they're the paymasters and there is an awful lot of players out of contract, you know, at the end of the season. I think part of the policy, you, 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 I'm sure everyone is aware of even last year that there was a lot more movement between the provinces than there probably has ever been for quite some time. And I would imagine that is because of the, the restricted amount of resources that, you know, every professional team is under, you know, and Irish rugby included when you you can't fill the Aviva Stadium. So I mean I know that there are there are there are issues in, in loads of country when it, countries at the moment when it comes to rugby and the amount of funds that they have. So I would imagine this season when we saw quite a few players being moved from the other provinces or happy to move from the other provinces, that's one thing. But as well, how much are they able to afford these players now? How much, you know, uh, of, I mean, you can't imagine that the that their salaries, you know, are going to are going to be rising, you know, if you're a young star and you want to and you and you you know want to stay with the province. So the issue is obviously is that some of them will be tempted to go elsewhere, and that's just inevitable. It's inevitable every every year, but it could be worse this year because obviously the IRFU, you know, is it's you know it's hamstrung to a certain degree with the amount of money that it has presumably for its players, players' contract. And then you've got that versus, you know, other countries where maybe they're not so much affected, whereas, you know, France always have a lot of spending money. There are players, you know, who may, like Marcel Coutsy, who may want to decide they want to go back to South Africa for various different reasons, particularly at this time as well. So, yeah, it comes down to a lot of the, the financial ability of of uh, these four professional teams to contract players. And it's... It's time that they they really did sit down and and you know circle the wagons and decide you know what players do they want to keep and Connacht particularly is going to need some sort of word from the IRFU about you know how much money have we got to spend on players. William, I think Lily's analogy "circle the wagons" is kind of very true for Connacht. I think right now. Is it fair to say we'd nearly settle for something like the same squad coming back next year, considering how much potential there is in those young players? I mean, the thoughts of Connacht improving on their current squad with some outside signings seem highly optimistic. Fair point. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult. There's 27 players out of contract, which is too many, but that's wow. just the way it's the way it's fallen. Um, some of them will leave, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, players that the, the 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 way you keep players is you keep them interested in playing for Ireland. That's the carrot on the end of the stick because they know if they go abroad, they're not going to be selected. So they have to weigh up in their own minds: Do I have a future playing for Ireland? Can I get into Ireland squads? We're into a World Cup cycle. It's a long way away, but. They're already starting to think like that. Players that maybe feel they're not going to play a lot more rugby for Ireland or are not going to make that grade might have to look at the offers that that's been made to the, 
There's a lot of money in English rugby. There's a huge amount of rug- money in French rugby. It has to be said, if the if the uh, CVC deal for the Six Nations is done, the IRF, you're going to get about 60 million quid uh, out of that. That's a lot of money. Now, they won't, that all won't come in a lump. But Divide that by of, four and kind of get one quarter. Is that what you're saying to me? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it won't work like that either. Uh, and, and the payoff for that will be that the Six Nations will disappear onto satellite television. And that's going to be another huge argument. But money is the key to this. You've got to be able to offer competitive salaries. Younger players who are hungry, I suppose, are prepared maybe to say, well, look, okay, they've already taken big salary cuts, by the way. Everybody, players and management across all four provinces. Um, but they've been allowed to keep earning their their living, as, as, as Lindley put there a little while ago so, so eloquently. So the thing is, they've got to work out the players they want to keep they may lose a few players that they want to keep who feel I have to go now and make real money. Um, and that's why Colby Fianga went. Let's be blunt about this. He 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 got a deal that he just couldn't refuse. Leon just said to him, this is what we think you're worth. And Connacht couldn't couldn't match it. And that's that's going to happen somewhere this season. Some We've got some players who are putting their hands up. Um, it's interesting, they're talking, uh, the view in certain bits of Ulster is that Jack Conan or uh, Dan Levy will be the replacement for Marcel Coetzea because they're not getting enough game time at Leinster. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't like to be the person, that's only the rumour. But that, Leo Conan the, uh, like that. <laughs> uh, no, no, he won't. But the thing is, that's what you have to do with your prime assets. The IRF, you have to keep these players playing. If There's no use having them sitting on the bench uh, because Leinster has got so many good players. So it's possible that some players might come west. It's vital that you're in the Champions Cup. It seems to be a, a thing that really gets into players' heads, that if, if you're playing at that level rather than the Challenge Cup, but also the way Connacht play and the way that players who've come here have thrived all they have to do is talk to their mates and say, yeah, listen, come down here. This, this, there's a good setup here and I've thrived, so there's no reason that you can't. Uh, and I'm just delighted that they have actually got around to doing this because there was a discussion a few weeks ago in the press that said they wouldn't be talking about contracts till June. Well, in June, a lot of them would have just have already signed on the dotted line. It's, it's usually worked out by now. It's a very fraught time. And as Lindley said again, this is their livelihood. This is how they make their money. And it's a short career. This this is, you know, nobody says to a, a top, I don't know, surgeon, well, you you have to stay in Hospital X yeah. or Hospital Y. You know, so rugby players are the same and they have to be treated with, with respect. And I think that'll be an ongoing process uh, and it'll be happening fairly, fairly much as we speak. And just to finish, and Lindley, I'll give you the final word on this, but just to finish, they're not on massive money, folks. You know, across the board, 
if you compare other sports in the world, I mentioned ice hockey, which many people listening to this podcast will think is a, a side sport. But when you see the money a hockey player is on in North America compared to the average rugby player here, it's it's astronomical and it seems outrageous perhaps, but that's just the reality. So I guess that's it. When you say that's your livelihood, their careers are short, the contracts are short, the money is uh, is is not going to set you up for life. They have to make some tough decisions. Lily, do you want to have the final thought on this before we say goodbye to everyone? I think it comes down to basically two types of player. You're going to get your young player or your ambitious player who's not getting enough game time, who possibly is quite happy to move somewhere else where they can improve. And let's face it, Connacht have been the recipient of so many of those young players who are now actually strutting their stuff on the sport at the sports ground at the moment. When you look at players like, you know, uh, Tom Daly, who has just blossomed the season, you look at Samiano, players like that. So you're going to get those players who will always leave. And if, the, if, if they think they're, they're going to get more opportunities at another club, then they will possibly go. Then you're going to have your older experienced player your older experienced player who's possibly been knocking on the door of getting an Irish cap or playing for Ireland not quite there been there lost his opportunity and he looks at himself and he says well actually I've, I've given my all to try to get on the Irish team maybe I will go somewhere else where I where I know I'm not going to play for Ireland now I might as well go for the money. It is a short life. And I think you've got those two types of players, really, that it comes down to. And, you know, hopefully Connor will be in a situation where we seem to be in a good situation where we are enticing players, where there is a very a strong, strong um, acceptance that Connor comes down to Connor and you will develop and you will get your opportunities. And it's those players like the Sammy Arnolds, et cetera, who are going to actually help you know, boost boost that, you know, aspect of young players coming to Connor for opportunities. Not so sure what we can do about the more experienced players, unfortunately, especially if it comes to their livelihood and their money and where where they're, you know, their best to maybe go to look after themselves and their families. Well, fingers crossed, and as William said, maybe this investment within the Six Nations could be a tipping point at the right time for Connacht to get a small percentage of that and help them uh, retain some of these stars. Because I think, I think Andy Friend would settle for something similar to the squad he has right now, which is, with the usual amount of changes. And I think he'd be happy. All right, that's it, William. Thanks a million. Enjoy your weekend. No rugby. What are you going to do? Uh, I'll watch a bit of Test cricket from Sri Lanka. That'll do. I think Glasgow are playing Ed- Edinburgh this weekend. Is that right? They indeed they are. So, yeah, I'll probably finish up watching a bit of that. And of course, uh, I'll watch West Ham beat Burnley. Oh, gauntlet laid down. We're going okay now. Don't be too confident there now. Lindley, what's your weekend agenda looking like? Well, do you know, I can't actually eat my uh, any dinner on my dining room table at the moment because it is actually a stool full of uh, where I unpacked. I took all the Christmas decorations and put them all on the Christmas table, ready to take back up to the attic. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I, yeah, I still haven't done it. Still, it's all over the kitchen table. So I have a few <laughs> little, you know, d- domestic chores that I will be doing this weekend in between watching whatever rugby is on the TV and. Uh, especially if there's anything um, down under, I might take sort of a little perusal at that in the hopes that I will, that the sunshine and the conviviality of, of uh, summer in New Zealand will sort of just sort of seep into my bones and make me feel like, I, make me feel like because I should be there right now, make me feel a little bit better. 
You reminded me of a friend of the podcast, Kieran McNamara, a few years ago, sent me a picture out of the blue from Auckland watching a cricket oh. game in the sun. Oh. And I have to oh. say, I've never, ever felt the same jealousy of uh, wanting to be there. Wish you were here a moment. Then I did that day. So, yeah, good times. Anyways, since recording the episode, we have got confirmation that Connacht have a new fixture next Sunday, January 24th at three o'clock at the Sports Ground. Connacht will take on the Ospreys, that refixture, which had been originally scheduled to be played in February has been brought forward to fill in the void they'll have a break the following week and then they'll be in action against the Dragons on the 5th join us next week for more podcasting loose cut it loose break out or nothing changes sad and confused don't wait until